Everything around us is shifting. The economy is shifting. Everything's shifting. Do we have a strategy for the shift? I am seeing over and over and over in the world today people who are shifting without strategy, shifting out of frustration, shifting out of their emotions. But it's wrong to make a shift and not have a strategy. You cannot be led by your emotions in this hour. And God is the only one who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is the master architect that designs every shift that happens in your life. You want God to be at the helm of it because he knows when and he knows how. The whole stage has to be set. Stop making shifts ill-prepared. God is the puppet master. He's the great orchestrator. And he is moving all things together so that all things can work together for the good of them that love the Lord. And everything is moving along in divine order. And all of this is signs that a shift is about to God moves in the twilight. When all of our senses have come to ease, where we can hear him above hearing them, the noise has been too loud during the day. God speaks in the dark places. Sometimes the greatest words that we will ever get from God are in the twilight moments of our lives, in times that we are in the cave like Elijah. Real shifts in your life are done in the stillness of a spirit who is no longer being governed by eyesight and nose and mouth. All of that is laying down and now God has a chance to be heard. Have you come to a place of stillness yet? Or are you so busy doing what you're doing that if God would speak, you would never even notice it? And some of us refuse to be still long enough to hear from God until you can bear direction and instruction, the shift will not occur. Some of you are resistant to direction. I'm grown. No, 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 no. In order to get into the shift that God is going to do, you're going to need direction and you're going to need instruction. And he said, go back to a quiet place and be still and stop telling God how you feel and what you think and shut up, lay down, listen. We have lost the art of listening. Sometimes you're so busy responding that you're not listening. You want everybody to know that you're in the room and you want to be seen and you want to be heard. But every now and then, you have to be still and know that God is God. He doesn't need your endorsement. We've lost our art of listening. And we can't make the shifts that we need to make because we can't listen. We won't take direction. We won't take correction. And we won't get instruction. And it's killing our marriages. And they're almost every time it's because of these three things until the whole thing blows open. And then, guess what? Then, when it explodes, then you walk out. And I feel like a fire department called to the house after the house is burned down. And then you say, I'm going to call 911. Why? You won't take direction. And you will not listen at instruction until everything's exploded. And then you want a miracle. 
You would need a miracle in so many areas of your life. Your finances, you won't take instruction. You don't want to do anything but listen at church. You got great anointing, but you're about to be evicted. You won't take direction. You need to have the greatest emphasis placed on the areas where you have the greatest problem. Financially, what is your credit score? I can do a seminar on that. It'll be a handful of people. The areas where we've lost the art of listening are the areas that we suffer the most. Listen at this. Direction, correction, instruction will save your job, will save your relationships. And this whole shift is predicated on the ability to hear, not the ability to speak, not by who you're mentoring, not by who's your spiritual God child. Some of you got more spiritual daddies. You got five spiritual daddies. Stop. Go sit down. And when God speaks to you, you don't need five daddies. Sit down. Sit down and get a true word from God. The art of listening the lack of it is killing us. You and your husband are having a discussion all while one is talking. The other one's waiting on them to stop so that they can get their point in. No direction, no instructions are making divorced lawyers rich. I know that's hard to hear, but it needs to be heard. Go lay down and listen. The world is shifting. It doesn't work the way you think it works. That's why you wasted your 30s. 15, 18 years stolen out of your life. And now you're just starting to do what you ought to be finishing. And everything must happen on time. You have to move when he says move. You have to be still when he says be still. All of this is divine order. Shift strategies. We're not growing because we're not listening. And we've been through this long enough. And it's time for a shift to occur. Do you think God is shaking the planet like this and he doesn't require a shift? Don't you see things shifting? God is bringing about a change and you need to be in place. How much more will we have to lose for people to listen? Some people didn't start listening until a man died with a knee on his neck. What does it take to make you listen? I want you to think about three goals that you'd like to achieve. Number one, what's one personal goal that you'd like to achieve? Now I want you to think about your financial goals, taking your life to the next level. And whatever the goals are that you've set for yourself, I want you to multiply it a hundredfold. I found that most people fail in life because they do what I did for most of my life, aim too low and hit. What will be different because you showed up? I want you to think about the things that you want to do with your life, the kind of impact that you want to make. Everybody together, please, say it's possible. You don't get in life what you want, you get in life what you are. You have to create an achiever's mindset. My favorite book says, be ye not conformed to this world, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. As you begin to invest in yourself, 
This is the era where the three C's, accelerated change, overwhelming complexity, and tremendous competition. Setting aside time every day to work on your mindset. They did an interview with Warren Buffett and they asked him, what's the most important investment people can make today? Here's a guy that has billions of dollars in real estate and he said the most important investment you can make is in yourself. Promise yourself you'll read the books until your skills change. You'll listen to it until it makes sense. You'll practice it until you develop the skill. Never give up until, step by step, piece by piece, book by book, Go for it. Don't miss the chance to grow. Then you'll discover some of life's best treasures when you pay that price. Don't give up on your dreams. Some of what you're facing is just the natural rhythms of life. The people that don't go down and get discouraged are the people that rule their thoughts. Don't believe those lies that you've seen your best days. You wouldn't be alive if God didn't have something amazing in front of you. I live my life in the expectation that God is doing great things, even in the midst of trial. Look at this. How many of y'all had some days and you didn't think he was going to make it? Your track record for surviving unbearable days, it is 100%. See, once you understand that, you can get on with living. But you're worth it doing it again and again and again. I have lost. 22 pounds several times. As you take care of yourself, the next key is keys to motivation, to self-motivation. You want to live life with energy and passion. You want to make a conscious effort to be lively. See, in life, you either saying hello or goodbye. You either on the way or in the way. Leave dead people alone. Some folks just walking around looking saying, how you doing, honey? Stay away from these people. Just go away from them. It affects you. You want to smile. You want to be happy. You got a lot to be thankful for. But you watch some of the faces around you every day. And I tell you, some of these faces, they will put you in a depressed state of mind. So you want to avoid these kind of faces. When you see them coming, turn your head. Next thing is that you want to monitor your inner conversations. The things that you say to yourself. You want to watch them. And in watching them, you want to take charge. A friend of mine told me this evening, and she did it excellently. She said, I didn't want to come tonight. I was feeling so depressed. And I said, I'm going anyhow. See, that was a conversation. Oh, you really don't feel like it. You really don't need to do it. You don't really need to read anything. Forget all that. That's that inner conversation. Oh, you don't need to worry about trying to go into your own business. Forget that. You can't do that. What if you lose everything you've got? That inner conversation that stops you from doing the things you want to do less, don't do that. How can you possibly think about being a motivational speaker? You don't have the contacts. You don't have the money. You don't know the right people. You're going to get up there and your mind's going to go blank. Forget all that. You remember that time you got up before some people and you panicked? You stood up in your mind, sat down. Don't you remember? And I said, yes. And then I said, shut up. So you've got to learn to stand up to yourself inside yourself.
and short circuit, override that conversation that's always going on. 85% of what that conversation will tell you is negative. It's negative. It will tell you you're tired when you really are not tired. It will tell you you can't do it. It will fill you with fear. So you've got to watch that conversation. And when you find it going on, you've got to stand up to it and say, I'm going to do this anyhow. I'm afraid, but I'm afraid not to do it. And I'm not going to let you stop me. The biggest challenge that you will have in life is you. There's an old African proverb that says, if there's no enemy within, the enemy outside can do us no harm. Since ancient times, philosophers have seen it as the basis of all real achievement. This is the quality of courage. There's a book that tells the stories of all the winners of the Congressional Medal of Honor. It's a book that will bring tears to your eyes. It's one of the most powerful documents ever written. One American after another who put aside all thought of safety and faced down death in the service of this country. And more often than not, it's been in order to save other Americans rather than to defeat an enemy. When you read of their exploits, you realize that these were people who simply lost their fear of death in order to do what had to be done. Yes, those Medal of Honor winners were courageous individuals, but by itself, is overcoming the fear of death necessarily an expression of courage? I don't doubt that there are many people in this country who break the law and aren't afraid to die in the process, but I wouldn't call them courageous. And there are people who do deliberately foolhardy things with their cars that jeopardize their own lives and the lives of others, but they aren't courageous people. In fact, a hungry donkey will keep eating until his stomach bursts, even if you hit him with a stick trying to make him stop. He's overcome his fear all right, but he's obviously not courageous. We might not be able to precisely define it, but we intuitively sense that there are some differences between acts of rashness and the accomplishments of those winners of the Congressional Medal of Honor. Let me sum up in a couple of sentences what those differences reveal about the true nature of courage. I can't put it any better than the Greek philosopher Aristotle did, more afraid of what might happen to them financially. And it's certainly true that great changes are taking place in the economy that will have a direct impact on the lives of millions of people. I've heard it said that a corporation that employs 10,000 men and women today may only need one-fifth that many within 10 years. Over the last 50 years, whole sections of our society have learned to identify with the corporation that employed them. That corporation provided not only a salary, but health benefits and the opportunity to create a pension fund that would make retirement possible at age 65 or even sooner. Now that relationship between the employer and the corporation is changing. Much of the work that used to be done by domestic workers can now be done more cheaply overseas. And companies are taking advantage of that, perhaps out of necessity, perhaps simply to fatten the bottom line. In any case, the fear of losing one's job has now reached a segment of the white-collar workforce that's never been faced with it in quite this way. What else are we afraid of? 
Many people are concerned about their health. They're afraid that they'll get sick because they're not getting enough exercise, or because they're eating the wrong things, or because of chemicals in the air, or in their food, or water. In fact, I think people today are even more frightened of these things than they were in the past, when epidemics of disease and poor sanitation were everywhere. And with regard to their health, people are also afraid of the expenses that might result if they were to become sick or disabled, or the expenses they might have to bear if this were to happen to a parent or a family member. So financial fears and health-related fears are two of our major concerns. But the third thing that I sense really scares people today is a bit less easy to categorize. It's kind of a general feeling that things aren't as good as they used to be, that there's been a loss of control at some basic level of our society. There's a sense that one earthquake after another, some large and obvious, some smaller and almost imperceptible, have accumulated to shift the foundations of society, and it's going to keep on shifting toward a result that's anything but good. Now, keeping in mind our idea that a courageous person is not someone who never feels fear, but who fears the right thing at the right time in the right way, let's ask ourselves if these fears really fit that definition. I think if we look a little deeper, we'll see that what really scares people about these situations is the sense that they're going to be helpless, that all their trust was placed in somebody or something, and now they've been let down and they can't do anything. They're helpless. But remember, you're never really helpless. And the sense that you are helpless, or that you might be if certain things were to happen, is something we really ought to be afraid of, and that we should refuse to accept. You're never just a victim of circumstances. No matter what happens, you're never without options that can get you back on track. It takes courage to recognize that because it means accepting responsibility for your own future. But I would suggest that we should accept that responsibility because no one is really going to accept it for us, no matter what we may have been led to believe. Let me emphasize that underlying most fear is the fear of helplessness, of being victimized or being blown around by the winds of fate like a leaf is blown off a tree. But is that really a legitimate way of looking at things? To me, it sounds like being afraid of the dark, in which case the best thing to do is to get yourself up, out of bed, and switch on the light. After all, the people who built this country didn't feel helpless when they faced obstacles that we can hardly even imagine today. I'm not saying we should all just gather around the campfire and tell stories about George Washington, but we should realize that every generation has faced insecurities and lived with them and triumphed over them. It's only in the past 50 years or so people have come to expect a life without real tough times and real difficulties. But adversity isn't something to fear. It's something to expect, something to prepare for and something to overcome. The truly courageous person is not immune to fear, but it plays a different role in his or her life than it does for other people. 
If you're a courageous person, your fears aren't about what someone might do to you or something that might happen to you. Your fears are about not living up to your ideals, about reacting instead of acting, about not taking advantage of the opportunities that are always within reach. A truly courageous person is not afraid of what might or might not happen next week or next year. He fears not making the most of every moment today. A truly courageous person fears the impulse to dominate other people. She leads by helping others to be their best. A truly courageous person fears making appearances more important than realities, making impressions more important than communication making himself more important than those who are depending on him. But there's one thing a courageous person fears most. Have you ever seen a deer caught in the headlights of a car, the way the deer just stands there as though paralyzed with the car bearing down? The truly courageous person fears ever getting caught like that, and a constant part of his or her life is dedicated to making sure it never happens. In other words, the truly courageous person, as someone once said, fears nothing except fear itself. Okay, we're having a conversation. I'm deciding I'm going to listen to you, right? That's different than how people generally communicate, because usually when they communicate, they're doing something like, okay, we're going to have a conversation, and I'm going to tell you why I'm right, and I'll win if you agree. Or maybe you're having a conversation where, I don't know what you're trying to do. Maybe you're trying to impress the person you're talking to. So you're not listening to them at all. You're just thinking about what you're going to say next. Okay, so that's not this. This is, you might have something to tell me. And so I'm going to listen on the off chance that you'll tell me something that would really be useful for me to know. And so, if you agree with me and I find that out, I know nothing more than I knew before. I just know what I knew before. And maybe I'm happy about that because, you know, it didn't get challenged. But I'm no smarter than I was before. But maybe you're different than me. And so while I'm listening to you, you'll tell me something I wouldn't, I don't like. Maybe it's something I find contemptible or difficult, whatever. Maybe you'll find, you'll tell me something I don't know. And then I won't be quite as stupid. And then maybe I won't run painfully into quite as many things. And that's a really useful thing to know, especially if you live with someone and you're trying to make long-term peace with them, is they're not the same as you. And their way they look at the world and the facts that they pull out of the world aren't the same as your facts. And even though you're going to be overwhelmed with the proclivity to demonstrate that you're right, it is the case that two brains are better than one. And so maybe nine of the ten things they tell you are dispensable, or maybe even 49 out of 50, but one thing All you need to get out of the damn conversation is one thing you don't know. And one of the things that's very cool about a good psychotherapeutic session is that the whole conversation is like that. All you're doing is trying to express the truth of the situation as clearly as possible. That's it. And so, now, Roger's proposition, and I'll tell you why he derived it, was that... If you have a conversation like that with someone, it will make both of you better. It'll make both of you psychologically healthier. So there's an implicit presupposition that the exchange of truth is curative. Well, that's a very cool idea. I mean, it's a very deep idea. 
Uh, I think it's the most profound idea. It's the it's the idea upon Western civil upon which Western civilization, although not only Western civilization, is actually predicated. The idea that truth produces health. But for Rogers, that was the entire purpose of the psychotherapeutic alliance. You come to see me because you want to be better. You don't even know what that means necessarily. Neither do I. We're going to figure that out together. But you come and you say, look, things are not acceptable to me. And maybe there's something I could do about that. So that's the minimal precondition to engage in therapy. Something's wrong. You're willing to talk about it truthfully. And you want it to be better. Without that, the therapeutic relationship does not get off the ground. And so then you might ask, well, what relationships are therapeutic? And the answer to that would be, if you have a real relationship, it's therapeutic. If it isn't, what you have is not a relationship. God only knows what you have. You're a slave. They're a tyrant. You know, you're both butting heads with one another. It's a primate dominance hierarchy dispute. Oh, I don't know. You're like two cats in a barrel or two people with their hands around each other's throats. But you, what you have is not a relationship. One of the things I try to do in my therapeutic sessions is, first of all, to listen, to really listen. And then, well, while I listen, I watch. And while I'm listening, things will happen in my head. You know, maybe I'll get a little image of something, or I'll get a thought, or a question will emerge, and then I'll just tell the person what that is. But it's sort of directionless, you know. It's not like I have a goal, except that we're trying to make things better. I'm on the side of the person. I'm on the side of the part of the person that wants things to be better, not worse. And so then we, those parts of us have a dialogue, and the consequence of that dialogue is that certain things take place, and then I'll just tell the person what happened. And it isn't that I'm right. That's not the point. The point is is that they get to have an hour where someone actually tells them what they think. Here's the impact you're having on me. You know, this is making me angry. This is making me happy. This is really interesting. This reminds me of something that you said an hour ago that I don't quite understand. And the whole... The whole point is not for either person to make the proposition or convince the other that their position is correct, but merely to have an exchange of experience about how things are set up. And it's extraordinarily useful for people because it's often difficult for anyone to find anyone to talk to that will actually listen. And so another thing that's really strange about this listening is that if you listen to people, they will tell you the weirdest bloody things so fast you just cannot believe it. So if you're having a conversation with someone and it's dull, it's because you're stupid. That's why. You're not listening to them properly because they're weird. They're like wombats or albatrosses or rhinoceroses or something. Like they're strange creatures. And so if you were actually communicating with them and they were telling you how weird they really are, it would be... It would be anything but boring. So, and you can ask questions. That's a really good way of listening. But, you know, one of Roger's points is, well, you have to be oriented properly in order to listen. And the orientation has to be, look, what I want out of this conversation is that the place we both end up is better than the place we left. That's it. That's what I'm after. And if you're not after that, you've got to think, why the hell wouldn't you be after that? What could you possibly be after that would be better than that? You walk away smarter and more well-equipped for the world than you were before you had the conversation, and so does the other person. Well, maybe if you're bitter and resentful and angry and anxious and, you know, generally annoyed at the world, then that isn't what you want. You want the other person to walk away worse than you too because you're full of revenge. But, you know, you'll get what you want if you do that. So... 
We know from our research that such empathic understanding, understanding with a person, not about him, is such an effective approach that it can bring about major changes in personality. Some of you may be feeling that you listen well to people and that you have never seen such results. The chances are very great that you have not been listening in the manner that I've described. Fortunately, I can suggest a little experiment that you can do to test the quality of your understanding. The next time you get into an argument with your wife or your friend or a small group of friends, stop the discussion for a moment and for an experiment institute this rule. Each person can speak up for himself only after he has first restated the ideas and feelings of the previous speaker accurately. What accurately means is they have to agree with your restatement. Now that's an annoying thing to do. If someone is talking to you and you disagree with them, the first thing you want to do is take their argument, make the stupidest possible thing out of it that you can, that's the straw man, and then demolish it. It's like, so then you can walk away feeling good about it and, you know, you primate dominated them really nicely. But that isn't what you do. You say, okay, well, I'm going to take what you told me and maybe I'm even going to make your argument stronger than the one you made. That's useful if you're dealing with someone that you have to live with because maybe they can't bloody well express themselves very well, but they have something to say. So you make their argument strong. All right, then you see what this would mean. It would mean that before presenting your own point of view, it would be necessary for you to really achieve the other speaker's frame of reference to understand his thoughts and feelings so well that you could summarize them for him. Sounds simple, doesn't it? But if you'll try it, you'll find that it's the most difficult thing that you've ever done. What could you do to improve yourself? Well, let's step one step backwards. The first question might be, why should you even bother improving yourself? And I think the answer to that is something like, so you don't suffer any more stupidly than you have to. And maybe so others don't have to either. It's something like that. You know, like there's a real injunction at the bottom of it. It's not some casual self-help doctrine. It's that if you don't organize yourself properly, you'll pay for it. And in a big way, and so will the people around you. Now, and you could say, well, I don't care about that, but that's actually not true. You actually do care about that. Because if you're in pain, you will care about it. And so you do care about it, even if it's just that negative way, you know. Um, it's very rare that you can find someone who's in excruciating pain who would ever say, well, it would be no better if I was out of this. It's sort of pain is one of those things that brings the idea that it would be better if it didn't exist along with it. It's incontrovertible. So you get your act together so that there isn't any more stupid pain around you than necessary. Well, so then the question might be, well, how would you go about getting your act together? And the answer to that, and this is a phenomenological idea too, it's something like, look around for something that bothers you and see if you can fix it. So now you think, well, let's say there, let's say you go into a, you can do this in a room. It's quite fun to do it just when you're sitting in a room, like a room, maybe your bedroom. You can sit there and just sort of meditate on it and think, okay, if I wanted to, spend 10 minutes making this room better, what would I have to do? And you have to ask yourself that, right? It's not a command. It's like a genuine question. And things will pop out in the room that you know, you like there's a stack of papers over there that's kind of bugging you and you know that maybe little order there would be a good thing. And, you know, you haven't... There's some rubbish behind your computer monitor that you haven't attended to for like six months and the room would be slightly better if it was a little less dusty and the cables weren't all tangled up the same way. And like if you if you allow yourself just to co- consider the expanse in which you exist at that moment, there'll be all sorts of things that'll pop out in it that you could just fix. 
and you know, I might say, well, if you were coming to see me for psychotherapy, the easiest thing for us to do first would just be to get you to organize your room. You think, well, is that psychotherapy? And the answer is, well, it depends on how you conceive the limits of your being. And I would say, start where you can start. You know, if, if something announces itself to you, which is a strange way of thinking about it, as in need of repair, that you could repair, then, hey, fix it. You fix a hundred things like that, your life will be a lot different. Now, I often tell people too, fix the things you repeat every day, because people tend to think of those as trivial, right? You get up, you brush your teeth, you, you have your breakfast, you know, you, you have your routines that you go through every day. Well, those, those probably constitute 50% of your life. And people think, well, they're mundane, I don't need to pay attention to them. It's like, no, no, that's exactly wrong. The things you do every day, those are the most important things you do, hands down. All you have to do is do the arithmetic. You figure it out right away. So, a hundred adjustments to your broader domain of being, and there's a lot less rubbish, and there's a lot less rubbish around, and a lot fewer traps for you to step into. And so, that's in keeping with Jung's idea about erasing the dis. Once you've got your mind and your emotions together, and once you're acting that out, then you can extend what you're willing to consider yourself, and start fixing up the things that are part of your broader extent. Now, sometimes you don't know how to do that. So you might say, imagine you're walking down Bloor Street and there's this guy who's like alcoholic and schizophrenic and has been on the streets for 10 years. He sort of stumbled towards you and, you know, incoherently mutters something. That's a problem. And it would be good if you could fix it, but you haven't got a clue about how to fix that. You just walk around that and go find something that you could fix because if you muck about in that, not only is it unlikely that you'll help that person, it's very likely that you'll get hurt yourself. So, you know, just because while you're experiencing things announce themselves as in need of repair, doesn't mean that it's you right then and there that should repair them. You have to have some humility. You know, you don't walk up to a helicopter that isn't working and just start tinkering away with it. You, you have to stay within your domain of competence. But most of the time, if people look at their lives, you know, it's a very interesting thing to do. Uh, I like the I like the idea of the room because you can do that at the drop of a hat. You know, you go back to where you live and sit down and think, okay, I'm going to make this place better for half an hour. What should I do? And you have to ask, and things will just pop up like mad. And it's partly because your mind is a very strange thing. As soon as you give it a name, a genuine aim, it'll reconfigure the world in keeping with that aim. That that's actually how you see to begin with. And so if you set it a task, especially, you have to be genuine about it, which is why you have to bring your thoughts and emotions together, and then you have to get them in your body so you're acting consistently. You have to be genuine about the aim, but once you aim, the world will reconfigure itself around that aim, which is very strange, and, and it's technically true. What I'd like to do is just do a quick summary now of what I call the dire dozen. And this is the 12 points that I have been speaking about and and talking about here in this entire program. There are 12 of them. I'm just going to spend a moment or two on each. If you want to jot these down while you're watching, I would encourage you to keep track of these 12 ideas, the dire dozen, for connecting to intention. One, want more for others 
than you want for yourself. Want more for others. Whatever it is that you perceive to be missing, whatever health problems that you may have, whatever addictions you're struggling with, whatever lack of uh, love that you have in your life, whatever lack of peace that you have with your aunts and your uncles or your parents or your in-laws, want the peace that you seek for yourself more for them. Want it more for them. That is how we create this level of consciousness. Secondly, think from the end. Begin to see yourself surrounded by the people and the events and the things that you would like to have only see yourself. You're having a problem with an addiction? See yourself as addiction free. See yourself, if you'd like to have, if you'd like to, if there's a car that you want. My son was perfect at this, Sans. I mean, he's just so good at this. Because there's a certain car that he wanted. It's yellow. And he not he didn't just bug me about it every day, which they all do. <laughs> and all kids will do that. But he saw himself. He got a picture of it. He put it on his computer. It's the background of his, of his computer, this yellow whatever it is. All right? I call it the school bus. I told him I was going to put cab fares on the side of it. But that's what he wanted. Huh? And then he saw him. And then he went down and he drove it. And uh, it was a used car, and he got on the internet, and he just saw himself in it. He couldn't not see himself in it. You know, young, we call this just persistence and being a pain in the rear end oftentimes, but it's not that at all. What it is, is young people have this instant knowing and awareness that I can create what I want for myself in my life, and the way that I do it is I act as if it's already here. And you just, and almost like they won't be, they won't be denied it. That's what intention is. It's not that pit bull attitude. It's that awareness that I am thinking from the end. It's already here because everything that you think is missing from your life is already here. The third of these dozen is to be an appreciator in your life. Be an appreciator. Look for that which is valuable rather than worthless. Look, you go out and you buy a house. And ten years later, we say, it appreciates in value. What does that mean? What does it mean that a car, that a house rather, appreciates? It is more what? Valuable. It's more valuable. Same thing with you. If you're an appreciator, you have more value. Now you buy a car, you drive it off of the lot, and they say, well, it just depreciated by 20%. What does that mean? It is not as valuable as it was before. When you depreciate, you take your value away. When you appreciate, you make yourself valuable. What could be more valuable than being connected to source? Four, stay in rapport with source energy. Stay in rapport. Your job here is to be in a state of harmony with this. Constantly reminding yourself, is this how my source thinks? Five, resistance. Understand this about resistance. Every thought that you have that is other than that which you emanated from is resistance. Every unkind thought, every uncreative thought, every thought of judgment, every thought of fear, every thought of depression, every thought of it can't happen, all resistance. So if you say, well, Easy for him, he can talk about this, but I can't. That's resistance. You're right, absolutely. Even if you think all of this is a bunch of nonsense, you're absolutely right. 
You're absolutely, because for you, that's what you believe. And if you believe that, the universal source will help you to fulfill that belief. Sixth is what I talked about many times in the program. Contemplate yourself as surrounded by the conditions which you want to produce. Contemplate yourself that. Because the way, you are one with source. You are always one with source. You are one with all of its principles. All of those faces, you are one with it. It can't be anything other than it is. Neither can you. Seven, understand the art of allowing. Allowing means taking the path of least resistance. Every time you have a thought that doesn't, that, that has resistance in it, what you have done is you have created an absence of allowing. You have to, you have to almost think like, here I am here and here's source. How much energy can I pull from it? How much energy can I pull from it? Are you pulling energy from source or are you, are you away from it? Allow it. Allow yourself. Eight, practice radical humility. You are not this body that you are in. You are not this mind that you are in. You are not any of the possessions that you have. You are a divine source. Nine, be in a constant state of gratitude. Be grateful for everything that shows up. Everything. Stay in a state of being generous and grateful in your life. Because what could be more generous than that which has allowed you to come from the infinite source to this material world and back? Ten. Keep in mind that you can never resolve a problem by condemning it. Any problem that you have, when you use shame, you are using the lowest energy that's out there in the universe. You cannot shame your way into higher consciousness, into source energy. Eleven, play the match game. Play the match game. Always ask yourself, am I matched up with the field of intention? And finally, meditate. Make it a practice in your life. Meditation is essential because it is your way of staying connected to source. What is the only thing in the universe that can't be divided? You cannot divide God. Everything else has an up, down, north, south, east, west, male, female, right, wrong, black, white, alive, dead. Everything comes in dichotomies except for silence. Silence. You cut it in half, what do you get? More silence. Cut it in half again, more silence. Cut source in half, just more source. You can't divide it. Meditation. Stay in the gap. Happiness is one of those things. It's like, how do you benchmark it? You know what I mean? It right. kind of fluctuates. And... It's like hunger. I mean, it's, 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 it's something that go, goes in and out. It's always there. But happiness is, is a good answer. Yeah, but I, this is something I've cultivated for a long time and avoided things that make me unhappy and figured out what those things are and been very rigid about eliminating them from, from my life. And one of the big ones is eliminating interactions with people that are negative. That is gigantic. And be, because I've realized that I'm not really as independent as I used to like to think I was, I used to like to think that my thought process was independent and that I don't give a fuck what anybody thinks. That's nonsense. People say that because they absolutely care what people think and it bothers them. So they say, I don't give a fuck. 
But that I don't give a fuck stuff is almost entirely nonsense. You do care. And you care in both ways. You care if people are critical of you, care if people are positive of you, but you also care if people are living positive lives and they're motivating you. That's, that's a big one. People are fuel and other people, it's one of the reasons why I like talking to people, one of the reasons why I like to do podcasts because I get a lot out of, you know, like just talking to you about your time in the monastery or your, your push to get to that hundred miles. Like you get, energy out of people like that and you think about this energy and you think about this inspiration when you're doing other things and it also sets in your mind that when you meet these exceptional people that move you like what are the characters what are the qualities that they have what are the characteristics that they that they possess and those things become significant and important to you Whereas if you live around a bunch of people that are complaining and bitching about everything and they see the negative in everything and they're always whining, those people are the opposite of that. They're the opposite of inspiration and they're, they're just, they're, they're mud. You're just like, Bleh. it's like you're up to your ankles in mud. You try to trudge through life. It's difficult. You're not light. It's not, it's not pushing you. There's not a wind at your back. The wind's in your face and it's rough, you know, and over time i've learned that these people you just you, you're not going to fix them i used to want to fix them when i was young i used to want to go hey man i see what you're doing like dude don't do that anymore listen just try just just do this and and stop doing that and start doing this and if you just work towards this you could be successful and then a week later the guy's doing the same shit you're like okay right. i'm wasting a significant amount of my energy on someone who doesn't want to waste any of their energy on themselves and so managing the the community and the tribe that you're in making sure that you're a good member of that tribe that you're doing your part you know and there's a lot of uh, cynicism in these days about uh inspiration and about motivation because there's a lot of fake shit you know you can go on Instagram and you see a million of these inspirational quote pages and they're run by people that are probably depressed you know you see a lot of people that are you know talking about how to get ahead in life but they're not really doing anything themselves so there's a lot of cynicism involved in that but there's also sincerity in it and you can get if you just look at it with a pure heart and a pure mind you can get a lot of energy out of that and when you're around happy inspirational people that are successful it makes you feel better and you get inspired and if you act on that inspiration your life will be more fulfilled and it's not just inspirational in terms of financial success but in terms of doing difficult things whether it's running a hundred miles it doesn't pay you a goddamn thing other than the, the 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 wealth of the knowledge that you can push yourself to such an extreme or anything else, whether it's someone who becomes really good at playing chess or someone who's really good at martial arts or, or whatever it is. There's, there's a great feeling in these overcoming these difficult things because life is never this just constant state of I'm at a nine all day. And when I'm with my wife, I hit 10. Yay. And I stay like that. That's not real. What's real is like, you saying that you went to this monastery and felt all this this angst about meditating and being alone and not having your phone and not having the input, but then when it comes out of it, then you have this reward. So you you push through this 
and you had these uncomfortable feelings and you came out of those uncomfortable feelings with this newfound appreciation for time and this newfound this respect for your own existence in your own space and carving out three hours for yourself a day. That's where it all comes from. It all comes from life lessons and the lessons are learned through struggle. And I think that there's a lot of people out there that think somehow or another you're going to get to some place where you're living in silk sheets and you're getting your toes done while someone's dropping grapes into your mouth. I don't want that. I've never wanted that. That guy's not going to be happy. He's going to be bored an hour into the grapes. He's going to get those grapes away from me. Stop painting my toes. What am I doing in this bed? Something. I'm not stimulated. The human organism, the animal that we are, needs constant stimulation because it evolved trying to find food and escape enemies and find shelter, escape nature, escape the elements, try to survive. And this is the great joy that you have in taking care of your children, that you can protect your children from the elements and the enemies and feed them. And, and it's also the great sadness that you see in losers. When I see a loser, I see some guy who's 43 years old, lives in his parents' basement, and he fucking hates the world. I'm like, that was a baby. Man, this is a baby that somebody just gave nutrients to, whether it's nutrients in the forms of food or in the form of thoughts and ideas and examples. And this kid developed these horrible, self-defeating patterns of behavior that have led them to this point where they're this this middle-aged person with no future and no idea of how to get out of this rut and probably never will escape it and might just wind up sucking on a gun. You know, I mean, this is this is the world that we live in today. And I think part of that world is because we have been fed this line of horse that you're supposed to seek comfort. And I don't think you are. I think you're supposed to seek lessons and you're supposed to seek difficult tasks and and and, and, and accomplishments. And through those things and through doing things that are hard to do, even if it's just a 90 minute hot yoga class. I do a 90-minute yoga class, man. I, those last 20 minutes, I do not want to be there, man. And I definitely don't want to give 100%. And I can cheat. I can, I could kind of half-ass it. I can, I can, but if I don't and I get through it, when that time is up and the lady says namaste and everybody gets up, I'm like, F man, I made it. You know, I lost 15 pounds. My f yoga mat is drenched to the point where I can literally wring it out and fill a, a, a jug up with water. But, through that struggle, I will now have a better day, and I better can do it again tomorrow or do something else because if I just think, well, tomorrow I'm just going to coast and eat Twinkies and watch TV. Oh, hello, sadness, my old friend. Hello, depression, because when you're not doing anything, you feel like sh and that's just a part of being a human being. And we can pretend that we're something other than what we really are, and we can pretend, nah, me, man, I'm just cool, just chilling, doing nothing. Bullshit. You're a fucking human. You're a human being. You're, you evolved from the in hundreds of thousands of years of hunters and gatherers and people that were struggling, those re human reward systems are carved deeply into your DNA. And if you don't respect that, if you don't respect the mechanism of happiness and fulfillment and what you really need to do in order to feel satisfied in life, camaraderie, love, family, friendship, struggle, testing yourself, learning, all those things are imperative. They're all a giant part of being a person. Find your vision and follow it. You see, I think it's the most important thing that we have a very clear vision of where we go. A goal, where, where do we go? Because you can have the best ship in the world. You can have the best cruise liner, but if the captain does not know where to go, that ship will drift around the world and out there at sea and will never end up anywhere. And this is exactly the way it is in real life. If you don't have a goal, if you don't have a vision, you just drift around. 
and you're not going to be happy. This is why it is so important to have that vision. Now, I created that vision in Austria because I grew up after the Second World War. Austria, right along with Germany, lost the Second World War. There was, of course, depression. There was a terrible economic situation. There was famine. There was starvation and all of those things. And also, it was kind of a little place and narrow. I felt kind of, I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to escape. And I couldn't see myself really to work there and to stay there, to work in a factory or to work in a farm or to even to follow my father's footsteps and to become a police officer. I couldn't see that either. As a matter of fact, that's what my, my parents wanted me to do. They wanted me to become a police officer and to marry a girl by the name of Heidi and to have a bunch of children and to run around like the Von Trapp family in The Sound of Music. But that's not what I saw. This was the vision of my parents, but not mine. And luckily, one day in school, I watched a documentary about America. And I found myself, I knew exactly that is where I wanted to end up. I wanted to be in America. The question was just, how do I get there? How do I get to America? I mean, this was not a common thing to do way back in the 50s. No one had the money to travel or anything. But one day, I was fortunate enough to see a magazine. And that magazine showed me the path to America. And it was a bodybuilding magazine. And on the cover was this very muscular guy that was standing there like Hercules with a Hercules outfit. His name was Reg Park. This Reg Park was on that cover, and I remember the cover said, Mr. Universe becomes Hercules star. I read the article as fast as I could, learning about how he grew up in Leeds in England, poor, and how he trained five hours a day, every single day, and trained and trained and trained and lifted weights, and then he finally became Mr. Great Britain. And then he became Mr. Universe. And then he won a second Mr. Universe title and a third Mr. Universe title. And then all of a sudden he landed in Rome in Chinichita doing Hercules movies. I could see myself, I could visualize myself clearly to be a champion on that same stage where he won the Mr. Universe. And then to move to America, then get into movies and then become rich and famous. I had that vision very clearly laid out. I was so happy that I knew exactly where I was going. From that moment on, everything that I did, no matter how hard I had to work or how much I had to struggle, it didn't matter. It was a wonderful joy ride because I knew what the purpose was and I found my passion. The simple truth is, if you don't have a vision, if you don't have a goal, if you don't see your future laid out in front of you, you're just floating around without a purpose. Always discover your vision and the rest will follow. Never ever think small. If you're going to accomplish anything, you have to think big. You have to go and shoot for the stars. The biggest challenge most people have is because they think small. And the reason why people think small and why they choose small little goals is because they're afraid to fail. They know that if you shoot for a big goal, then the chances of failing are very high. And they're afraid of failing. It's one of the most common things why people are frozen and why they can't make a move in life because they're scared of failing. I say to myself, hey, I'm not worried about failing because that's part of life. You're not going to go and win everything. And how far can you fall? Look at this. This is the ground. That's as far as I can fall. And you know something? That the only time you really consider the failure is if you fall and you don't get up. But if you get up, you never consider the failure. So I never considered myself a failure. I always considered myself a winner, even though I fell every so often. But I always got up and I always moved forward.
This is the important thing. I never had any patience, of course, for sm thinking small, because in German we have a saying, wenn schon, denn schon. That means that if you do something, then go all out and do it well. And this is not just the case in bodybuilding. I didn't just want to be a bodybuilding champion. I wanted to be the greatest bodybuilder of all times. I wanted to have the most muscle, the, the most muscle of all times, the most definition. I wanted to win the most trophies, the most world championship titles. I just wanted to be the best. And the same is also in movies. I didn't just think about being in movies. No, I wanted to be a movie star. I wanted to have above the title building. I wanted to become the highest paid entertainer. I basically wanted to be another John Wayne. What's wrong with that? Never think small. Think big. Ignore the naysayers. I think it is natural that when you have a big vision and big dreams and you have big goals that people are going to say around you, I don't think it can be done. I think it's impossible. Or no. I tell you, I heard this all the time, but I want to tell you, don't ever let them stop you from dreaming and from shooting for the big goal. Because eliminate just simply those words, no, impossible, and it can't be done. I mean, it started right away when I was 15 years old and I became a bodybuilder. Right after that when I said, I want to be a world champion in bodybuilding, I want to be Mr. Universe. They immediately said, are you crazy? And then when I wanted to go into show business, after I won 13 world championship titles in bodybuilding, I said, I want to be like Reg Park. I want to be a Hercules. I want to get into movies. Well, I tell you, when I met those agents and managers and studio executives, their reaction was, <laughs> oh, Arnold, that is so funny. <laughs> you want to be what? A leading man? Oh, come on. I mean, look, uh, uh, first of all, let's start with your body. Look at your body. I mean, you're overdeveloped. You're gigantic. You're like a monster. Are you kidding me? Do you know what the new thing, the new trend is? It's little guys like Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Woody Allen. Those are the new sex symbols. Don't you get it? And then your accent. Oh, it gives me the chills just listening to your German bullshit. Come on now. I mean, oh God. I mean, it's like it's scary when you talk. It's unbelievable. I mean, have you ever, Arnold? I mean, be serious. Have you ever seen an international movie star with a German accent? It doesn't happen. Forget about that. And then your name, what is it, Schwarzen Schnitzel or something like that? Yeah, I can see that name already up there on the billboard. Yes, and people are going to storm the theater and the movie houses because Schwarzen Schnitzel is starring in a movie. Oh, yeah, I can see that already. So imagine that. Everywhere I turned, they said, no, it won't happen. It's not going to happen and forget about it. Luckily, I did not listen. I did not listen because I knew if I worked hard enough and if I worked as hard as I did in bodybuilding, five, six hours a day, that I would make it, that I could prove them wrong. And I started working very hard. I started taking acting classes, English classes, speech classes, dialogue classes, even accent removal classes. All of a sudden, I got a little break. In the early 70s, I remember, all of a sudden, I got a TV show, a little part. Then another little part. And then pumping on and stay hungry. And then, of course, I landed the big role of Conan the Barbarian. So finally I got the big, big break. And you know what was so interesting about it was that as soon as we were finished with the Conan movie, we were out there on a promotion tour. And the director said at the press conference, the director is John Millius, he said, if we wouldn't have had Schwarzenegger with those muscles... We would have had to build one. And then when I did Terminator, James Cameron said, 
which was really great. He said, the I'll Be Back line became one of the most famous movie lines in history because of Arnold's crazy accent, because he sounded like a machine when he talked. So as you see, everything that the naysayers said was a liability became an asset. Ignore the naysayers. Work your ass off. You never want to fail because you didn't work hard enough. It doesn't matter in what area you're in. No pain, no gain. Listen, when I came to the United States, I remember that I trained five hours a day, every day, and I was managing a construction business, and I was a bricklayer, and I went to college also, and I took acting classes from 8 o'clock at night to 12 o'clock midnight. All of that in one day. Every day I did that. I did not worry about it. I knew that I had 24 hours, and I didn't want to waste one single hour. Because I believe of what Ted Turner said, who is one of the great entrepreneurs who started CNN and so on. He said, early to bed, early to rise. Work like hell and advertise. So that's what I believe. Just remember, you can't climb that ladder of success with your hands in your pockets. You must work your ass off. It's that simple. Don't just take. Give something back. Tear down that mirror that makes you always look at yourself. And you will be able to look beyond that mirror and you will see the millions and millions of people that need your help. And I saw those millions and millions of people. And this is why I tried to take every opportunity that I could to give something back. I started training Special Olympians, people that were intellectually handicapped, to help them with weightlifting and powerlifting. I became the international powerlifting coach and the, the torchbearer for Special Olympics. I started after-school programs for the most vulnerable children, for inner-city children, to make them be able to say no to drugs, no to gangs, and no to violence, and to say yes to education and yes to life. We all can create change, whether it is in our neighborhood, or in our local schools, or in our country. Because the bottom line is, it is up to us. Have a vision. Think big. Ignore the naysayers. Work your ass off. And give back and change the world. Because if not us, who? If not now, when? Dreams are absolutely critical uh, if we're really going to be successful in life. The only uh, difference is you dream with your eyes wide open and not uh, while you're sound asleep only. The difference between a dream and a goal is simply a goal is a dream with a deadline. So we need to have that vision and that dream and then we need to start going through the process, the formula of working towards reaching it. Now, let me tell you what I do with my audiences on every seminar. I start by asking how many of you are honest and every hand goes up. Second question, how many of you, the day before you go on vacation, generally get more done than you normally get done in any two, three, four, or five days? Well, everybody hold up that. Of course I do, all right? And let me tell you why you do that. First of all, you focus on exactly what you've got to do. Second, you make a list of what needs to be done. Third, you prioritize those things as to what is important. Fourth, you get after them with a considerable amount of enthusiasm. Fifth, you accept the responsibility that if you don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. Sixth, you make the commitment to do it. And seventh, you become a team player. Now, if it works that well before you go on vacation, why not do it every day? Now, let me emphasize a point. 
By doing it every day, one of two things will happen. You'll either move up the ladder very quickly or else you will finish what you need to do much more quickly. Then you can use the extra time for recreation, personal growth, family time, spiritual goals, or all of the other things. Lack of time is not the problem. Lack of direction is the problem. Talk to me a little bit about goals, setting goals. How do we go about doing that? We begin uh, by writing down everything we want to be, do, or have. Let it sit for 48 hours. Then after each thing we've written down, write one word. That's why. And if we can't articulate in one sentence why we want to be, do, or have, then we eliminate that one at that time as a goal because it's just an idle thought. It's nothing sincere or serious. How can we tell uh, what we're serious about? How can, how can we really design something for our lives that's perhaps wishful thinking as opposed to reality? Well, actually, there are seven steps. You uh, look at what it is that remains on your list. And then you write down, number one, why do? You write the goal down, that's number one. Number two, why do I want to reach this goal? In other words, what will my benefits be if I reach this goal? Number three, you identify the obstacles that you'll have to overcome to get there. Number four, you spell out the people, the groups, the organizations you need to work with to get there. Number five, you identify what you need to know to get there. Number six, you devise a specific game plan to get there. And number seven, then you put the date on it. By the time you've done that, that will eliminate another 90% of all the things you've written down. And that saves you enormous amounts of time. David Jensen at UCLA just finished a study on the people who attend my four-hour seminars. And here's what he discovered. Those who set their goals as a result of the seminar and followed through earned an average of $7,401 a month. Those who heard the same information but did not set their goals with a plan for reaching them earned an average of $3,397 a month. Now, that's documented. But the other interesting part of it he discovered that people with goals have better family relationships and enjoy better health. People with direction just do better in every area of life. What characteristics in individuals do you admire, do you personally admire? I have several people. I have a mentor. His name is Fred Smith. He's 76 years old. He went with Janesco when there were 80 people. When he left, there were over 80,000. He's been a consultant for a number of major companies, served on the board for Mobile Oil. He's truly one of the wisest men I have ever known. We visit regularly, and I never see him that I do not uh, carry a notepad with me, literally, because I take so many notes. I have so many questions to ask. His wisdom is so incredible. He's well-educated, but there's a difference in knowledge and information and wisdom. You get uh, information out of newspapers and magazines. You get knowledge out of good books and encyclopedias. But until you add the spiritual dimension, uh, you're missing the wisdom, or some people prefer to call it common sense. That's the reason some public figures who are geniuses in one department really drop the ball in so many other departments because their common sense or wisdom is missing. That's what I admire about Fred Smith so much. He has such great balance of all of those things. 
would you say that that would be a, a key point for an individual to find themselves a mentor or an older gentleman perhaps to mentor someone else? Yes, uh, that's tremendously helpful. Those are not always available. That's the reason good books and growth is so incredibly important. Simple story, Vince Robert, Ottawa, Canada, 37 years old, taxi driver, fifth grade education, realized he was going nowhere, bought himself a big dictionary, put it on the front seat of his cab, started on page one, word one, started learning those words. Before he got a half inch in it, he was understanding things he had never understood before. Started investing in the stock market, ended up buying the 19 car cab company, kept on investing. Today is a wealthy man, travels Canada, uh, telling other people how he did it. He's a self-educated man. One of the things that we need to constantly emphasize is we need to teach our people, our society, our country, that failure is an event. It's not a person. Yesterday ended last night. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Explain to me your definition of a positive thinking. Positive thinking is an optimistic hope, not necessarily based on any facts that you can move mountains. And I've seen positive thinking move some mountains, but I've seen people get killed by it as well. Positive believing is the same optimistic hope, but this time based on a reason for believing that you can move those mountains. If I were to say that I could whip George Foreman, for example, that would be not positive thinking, that'd be idiotic thinking because I, you know, I'm obviously couldn't. But if Evander Holyfield were to say, I believe I can whip George Foreman, that's positive believing because he's already done it. So the believer builds a foundation and has reasons for believing he can do something. He or she are the people who are far more likely to ultimately be very successful. Then there's the wild-eyed enthusiast who says, man, with positive thinking, you can just do anything. That's crazy. That's just not available. That's not possible. Incidentally, positive thinking will let you do infinitely more than negative thinking will. It's just that it has a ceiling. With it, you cannot do anything. How can a person create a healthy self-image if perhaps they don't have a great opinion of themselves? Well, one thing they can start, my friend Joe Batten gave me this one. Uh, you list the victories you have had in your life. I mean, from the day that you can first remember, you'll be astonished to realize that a typical 25-year-old uh, person can identify at least 200 things which they have done that have been successful. They've been victories. And then when things are not going well, they look at those and that gives them encouragement. Number two, identify the positive qualities which they have. In other words, anybody can honestly say, I can be just as honest as the next guy. I can work just as hard. I can be just as enthusiastic. I can develop just as much motivation. I can become just as good a student. And anybody with these qualities has got to be that right. The way you dress even can have an impact on it. The message I try to deliver to people is play to win. Don't play to avoid loss because the things you fear, the things that's going to happen to you. Set that target on something positive. Work for it. Expect it. Bobby Knight at Indiana University says the will to win is nothing without the will to prepare to win. See, everybody wants to win, but are you willing to prepare to win? One of the major points I often make is what you do off the job determines how far you go on the job. 
Every athlete, every actor, every singer, every entertainer knows that. Most doctors and attorneys and professionals know that. Specific example, in the typical American plant, the hourly wage earner watches 30 hours of TV a week. The person in charge of the line watches 25 hours of television a week. The foreman watches 20 hours a week. Plant superintendent watches 15 hours. The vice president watches between 12 and 15. The president watches between 8 and 12. And the chairman of the board watches between 4 and 8 hours of TV. And 50% of that time, he or she is watching training videos. Now, my question is, what would happen to that line worker who watches 30 hours a week if he were to take away 10 of those hours a week and study and plan and prepare? I guarantee you wouldn't stay on the line very long. Today, I want to tell you three stories from my life. That's it. No big deal. Just three stories. The first story is about connecting the dots. I dropped out of Reed College after the first six months, but then stayed around as a drop-in for another 18 months or so before I really quit. So why did I drop out? It started before I was born. My biological mother was a young, unwed graduate student, and she decided to put me up for adoption. She felt very strongly that I should be adopted by college graduates, so everything was all set for me to be adopted at birth by a lawyer and his wife. Except that when I popped out, they decided at the last minute that they really wanted a girl. So my parents, who were on a waiting list, got a call in the middle of the night asking, we've got an unexpected baby boy. Do you want him? They said, of course. My biological mother found out later that my mother had never graduated from college and that my father had never graduated from high school. She refused to sign the final adoption papers. She only relented a few months later when my parents promised that I would go to college. This was the start in my life. And 17 years later, I did go to college. But I naively chose a college that was almost as expensive as Stanford. And all of my working class parents' savings were being spent on my college tuition. After six months, I couldn't see the value in it. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life and no idea how college was going to help me figure it out. And here I was, spending all of the money my parents had saved their entire life. So I decided to drop out and trust that it would all work out okay. It was pretty scary at the time, but looking back, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. The minute I dropped out, I could stop taking the required classes that didn't interest me and begin dropping in on the ones that looked far more interesting. It wasn't all romantic. I didn't have a dorm room, so I slept on the floor in friends' rooms. I returned Coke bottles for the five-cent deposits to buy food with. And I would walk the seven miles across town every Sunday night to get one good meal a week at the Hare Krishna temple. I loved it. And much of what I stumbled into by following my curiosity and intuition turned out to be priceless later on. Let me give you one example. Reed College at that time offered perhaps the best calligraphy instruction in the country. Throughout the campus, every poster, every label on every drawer was beautifully hand-calligraphed. Because I had dropped out and didn't have to take the normal classes, I decided to take a calligraphy class to learn how to do this. I learned about serif and sans-serif typefaces, about varying the amount of space between different letter combinations, about what makes great typography great. It was beautiful, historical, 
artistically subtle in a way that science can't capture. And I found it fascinating. None of this had even a hope of any practical application in my life. But 10 years later, when we were designing the first Macintosh computer, it all came back to me. And we designed it all into the Mac. It was the first computer with beautiful typography. If I had never dropped in on that single course in college, the Mac would have never had multiple typefaces or proportionally spaced fonts. And since Windows just copied the Mac, it's likely that no personal computer would have them. If I had never dropped out, I would have never dropped in on that calligraphy class, and personal computers might not have the wonderful typography that they do. Of course, it was impossible to connect the dots looking forward when I was in college, but it was very, very clear looking backwards 10 years later. Again, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever, because believing that the dots will connect down the road will give you the confidence to follow your heart even when it leads you off the well-worn path, and that will make all the difference. My second story is about love and loss. I was lucky. I found what I loved to do early in life. Waz and I started Apple in my parents' garage when I was 20. We worked hard, and in 10 years, Apple had grown from just the two of us in a garage into a $2 billion company with over 4,000 employees. We just released our finest creation, the Macintosh, a year earlier, and I just turned 30. And then I got fired. How can you get fired from a company you started? Well, as Apple grew, we hired someone who I thought was very talented to run the company with me. And for the first year or so, things went well. But then our visions of the future began to diverge, and eventually we had a falling out. When we did, our board of directors sided with him. And so at 30, I was out, and very publicly out. What had been the focus of my entire adult life was gone, and it was devastating. I really didn't know what to do for a few months. I felt that I had let the previous generation of entrepreneurs down, that I had dropped the baton as it was being passed to me. I met with David Packard and Bob Noyce, and tried to apologize for screwing up so badly. I was a very public failure, and I even thought about running away from the valley. But something slowly began to dawn on me. I still loved what I did. The turn of events at Apple had not changed that one bit. I'd been rejected, but I was still in love. And so I decided to start over. I didn't see it then, but it turned out that getting fired from Apple was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. The heaviness of being successful was replaced by the lightness of being a beginner again, less sure about everything. It freed me to enter one of the most creative periods of my life. During the next five years, I started a company named Next, another company named Pixar, and fell in love with an amazing woman who would become my wife. Pixar went on to create the world's first computer animated feature film, Toy Story, and is now the most successful animation studio in the world. In a remarkable turn of events, Apple bought Next, and I returned to Apple, and the technology we developed at Next is at the heart of Apple's current renaissance, and Lorene and I have a wonderful family together. I'm pretty sure none of this would have happened if I hadn't been fired from Apple. It was awful-tasting medicine, but I guess the patient needed it. Sometime life, sometimes life's going to hit you in the head with a brick. Don't lose faith. I'm convinced that the only thing that kept me going was that I loved what I did. You've got to find what you love, and that is as true for work as it is for your lovers. 
Your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on. So keep looking. Don't settle. My third story is about death. When I was 17, I read a quote that went something like, if you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. It made an impression on me. And since then, for the past 33 years, I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I am about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet, death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. Stay hungry, stay foolish. I'm going to talk to you about some things I've learned in my journey. Most from experience, some of them I heard in passing. Many of them I'm still practicing, but all of them I do believe are true. Life's not easy. Is it up there? Life is not easy. It is not. Don't try to make it that way. Life's not fair. It never was. It isn't now and it won't ever be. Do not fall into the trap, the entitlement trap of feeling like you're a victim. You are not. Get over it and get on with it. And yes, most things are more rewarding when you break a sweat to get them. Unbelievable is the stupidest word in the dictionary. Should never come out of our mouths. Think about it. To say, oh wow, what an unbelievable play. Uh, it was an unbelievable book, an unbelievable film, an unbelievable act of courage. Really? It may be spectacular, it may be phenomenal, most excellent or outstanding. But unbelievable? Uh -uh. Give others and yourself more credit. It just happened. You witnessed it. You just did it. Believe it. Happiness is an emotional response to an outcome. If I win, I will be happy. If I don't, I won't. It's an if-then cause and effect, quid pro quo, standard that we cannot sustain because we immediately raise it every time we attain it. See, happiness, happiness demands a certain outcome. It is result reliant. 
And I say, if happiness is what you're after, then you're going to be let down frequently and you're going to be unhappy much of your time. Joy, though, joy is a different thing. It's something else. Joy is not a choice. It's not a response to some result. It's a constant. Joy is the feeling that we have from doing what we are fashioned to do, no matter the outcome. Now, personally, as an actor, I started enjoying my work and literally being more happy. Define success for yourself. Now, check this out. I'm in uh, south of New Orleans uh, a few years ago, and I went to a voodoo shop. Uh, and they had this, this, this wooden partition against the wall, these columns. And in, in these columns were all these vials of these magic potions, right? And the headings above each potion defining what they would give you were things like fertility, health, uh, family, legal health. Energy, forgiveness, money. <laughs> Guess which column was empty? Money. Let's admit it. Money is king today. It's what make the world, makes the world go round. It is success. The more we have, the more successful we are, right? Now, I would argue that our cultural values have even been financialized. Financialized. Uh, humility is not in vogue anymore. It's too passive. To get rich quick on the internet, rich is 15 minutes of fame world that we live in, and we see it every day. But we all want to succeed, right? So the question that we've got to ask ourselves is what success is to us? What success is to you? Is it more money? That's fine. i got nothing against money. Maybe it's a healthy family. Maybe it's a happy marriage. Maybe it's to help others, to be famous, to be spiritually sound, to leave the world a little bit better place than you found it. Continue to ask yourself that question. Now, your answer may change over time, and that's fine. But do yourself this favor. Whatever your answer is, don't choose anything that will jeopardize your soul. Prioritize who you are, who you want to be, and don't spend time with anything that antagonizes your character. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, man. It tastes sweet, but you will get cavities tomorrow. All right, Life is not a popularity contest. Be brave, take the hill, but first answer that question, what's my hill? So first, we have to define success for ourselves. And then, we have to put in the work to maintain it. Take that daily tally. Tend our garden. Keep the things that are important to us in good shape. Where you are not is as important as where you are. It is just as important where we are not as it is where we are. Look, the first step that leads to our identity in life is usually not, I know who I am, I know who I am. That's not the first step. The first step's usually, I know who 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 I am not process of elimination. Defining ourselves by what we are not is the first step that leads us to really knowing who we are. You know that group of friends that you hang out with that they really might not bring out the best in you? You know, they, they gossip too much or they're kind of shady. They really aren't going to be there for you in a pinch. Or how about that bar that we keep going to that we always seem to have the worst hangover from? Or that computer screen, right? The computer screen that keeps giving us an excuse not to get out of the house and engage with the world and get some real human interaction. 
Or how about that food that we keep eating? Stuff that tastes so good going down, it makes us feel like crap the next week. We feel lethargic when we keep putting on weight. Well, those people, those places, those things, stop giving them your time and energy. Just don't go there. I mean, put them down. And when you do this, when you do put them down, when you quit going there, and you quit giving them your time, you inadvertently find yourself spending more time and in more places that are healthy for you, that bring you more joy. Why? Because you just eliminated the who's, the where's, the what's, and the when's that were keeping you from your identity. Like, trust me, too many options, <laughs> I promise you, this, too many options will make a tyrant of us all. All right, so get rid of the excess, the wasted time. Decrease your options. If you do this, you will have accidentally, almost innocently, put in front of you what is important to you by process elimination. Knowing who we are is hard. It's hard. So give yourself a break. Eliminate who you are not first, and you're going to find yourself where you need to be. Don't leave crumbs <laughs> and the beauty of delayed gratification. So what are crumbs? Well, the crumbs I'm talking about are the choices that we make that make us have to look over our shoulder in the future. You didn't pay that guy back the money that you owed him, and tonight you just saw him three rows behind you. Shit. You slept around on your spouse, and you just found out that tomorrow she and the lady you're having an affair with are going to be at the same PTA meeting. Shit again. You drank too much last night. You're too hungover to drive your son to his 8 a.m. Saturday morning baseball practice. These are the crumbs. They come in the form of regret, guilt, and remorse. You leave crumbs today, they will cause you more stress tomorrow. And they disallow you from creating a customized future in which you do not have to look over your shoulder. So let's flip the script. Instead of creating outcomes that take from us, let's create more outcomes that pay us back. Fill us up. Keep your fire lit. Turn you on for the most amount of time in your future. These are the choices I'm talking about. And this is the beauty of delayed gratification. All right, tee yourself up. Do yourself a favor. Make the choices, the purchases today that pay you back tomorrow. Residuals. In my business, we call it mailbox money. If I do my job well today, and that movie keeps rerunning on TV, five years from now, I'm getting checks in the mailbox. It's a heck of a deal. So whether it's prepping the coffee maker the night before, so all you got to do is press the button in the morning, or getting ready for the job interview early so you don't have to cram the night before, or choosing not to hook up with that married woman because you know you're going to feel horrible about it tomorrow, and her husband carries a gun, or paying your debts on time so that when you do see that guy three rows back tonight, you don't have to hunker down in your seat hoping that he don't see you. Get some ROI. You know what that is? Return on investment. Your investment. You. Customize your future. Don't leave crumbs. Dissect your successes and the reciprocity of gratitude. We so often focus on failure, don't we? We study failure. We obsess with failure. We dissect failure and our failures. We dissect them so much we end up intoxicated with them to the point of disillusion. I mean, when do we write in our diary? Usually when we're depressed. What do we gossip about? Other people's flaws and limitations. 
We can dissect ourselves into self-loathing if we're not careful. I find that most of the times our obsession with what is wrong just ends up breeding more wrong, more failure. Now, the easiest way to dissect success is through gratitude. Giving thanks for that which we do have, for what is working. Appreciating the simple things we sometimes take for granted. We give thanks for these things and that gratitude reciprocates, creating more to be thankful for. It's really simple and it works. Now, I'm not saying be in denial of your failures. No, we can learn from them too, but only if we look at them constructively as a means to reveal what we are good at, what we can get better at, what we do succeed at. Now, personally, I've read a whole lot of my bad reviews. I've had quite a few. Written by the more talented critics, they are the ones who give constructive bad reviews. They reveal to me what did translate in my work, what came across, what was seen, or what wasn't. Now, I don't obsess on the unfavorable aspect of their review, but I do seek what I can learn from it. Because their displeasure actually uncovers and makes more apparent what I do do well, what I am successful at, and then I dissect that. Our life's a verb. We try our best, we don't always do our best. Well, architecture is a verb as well. Yes, it is. And since we are the architects of our own lives, let's study the habits, the practices, the routines that we have that lead to and feed our success, our joy, our honest pain, our laughter, our earned tears. Let's dissect that and give thanks for those things. And when we do that, guess what happens? We get better at them and we have more to dissect. Make voluntary obligations. All right, mom and dad, since we were young, they teach us things as children. Teachers, mentors, the government, and on laws, they all give us guidelines for which to navigate this life. Rules to abide by in the name of accountability. I'm not talking about those obligations. I'm talking about the ones that we make with ourselves, with our God, with our own consciousness. I'm talking about the you versus you obligations. We have to have them. Now, again, these are not societal laws and expectations that we acknowledge and endow for anyone other than ourselves. These are faith-based obligations that we make on our own. These are not the lowered insurance rates for a good driving record. You will not be fined or put in jail if you do not gratify these obligations I speak of. No one else governs these but you. They are your secrets with yourself, your own private counsel, personal protocols. And while nobody throws you a party when you abide by them, no one's going to arrest you when you break them either, except yourself. Or some cops who got a disturbing the peace call at 2.30 in the morning because you were playing bongos in your birthday suit. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> An honest man's pillow is his peace of mind. And when you lay down on that pillow at night, no matter who's in your bed, we all sleep alone. These are your personal Jiminy Crickets. And there are not enough cops in the entire world to police them. It's on you. It's on you. A roof is a man-made thing. This may cut a little close to the bone since uh, the geography, but I think we all were there and we uh, will all remember where we were. 
But in January the 3rd, 1993, it was the NFL playoffs, and your Houston Oilers were playing the Buffalo Bills. The Oilers were up 28-3 at halftime. 35-3 early in the third. Frank Reich and the Bills come back to win 41-38 in overtime for one of the greatest comebacks in NFL history. Yeah, the Bills won, but they didn't really beat the Oilers. The Oilers lost that game. They beat themselves. Y'all remember that? Huh. Why? Why'd they beat themselves? Or how? Was it because at halftime they put a ceiling? A roof? A limit on their belief in themselves? A.K.A. the prevent defense? Or maybe they started thinking about the, the next opponent in the playoffs at halftime. I mean, they were up. Then they came out, played on their heels, lost the mental edge the entire second half, and voila, they lost. In a mere two quarters, defensive coordinator Jim Eddy went from being called the defensive coordinator of the year and the man first in line to be a high uh, a head coach next year to a man without a job in the NFL. You ever choked? Nobody has ever choked? I have. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, fumbling at the goal line, suck your foot in your mouth once you got to the microphone, had a brain freeze on the exam that you were totally prepared for, forgot the punchline to a joke in front of 4,000 graduating students at the University of Houston commencement. Or maybe you've had that feeling of, oh my God, life just cannot get any better than this moment. And ask yourself, do I deserve this? Now what happens when we get that feeling? Tense up. We have this sort of outer body experience where we are literally seeing ourselves in the third person. And we realize that the moment just got bigger than us. You ever felt that way? I have. And it's because we have created a fictitious ceiling, a roof, to our expectations of ourselves. A limit where we think it's all too good to be true. But it's not. And it's not our right to say or believe it is. We shouldn't create these restrictions on ourselves. A blue ribbon, a statue, a score, a great idea, the love of our life, a euphoric bliss. Who are we to think that we don't deserve or haven't earned these gifts when we get them? It's not our right. But if we stay in process, all right, within ourselves, in the joy of the doing, we will never choke at the finish line. Why? Because we aren't thinking of the finish line. Because we're not looking at the clock. We're not watching ourselves on the jumbotron performing the very act that we're in the middle of. No, we're in process. The approach is the destination and we are never finished. Bo Jackson, what did he do? He used to run over the goal line, through the end zone and up the tunnel. The greatest snipers and, and marksmen in, in the world, they don't aim at the target. They aim on the other side of the target. We do our best when our destinations are beyond the measurement, when our reach continually exceeds our grasp, and when we have immortal finish lines. And when we do this, the race is never over. The journey has no port. The adventure never ends because we are always on the way. So do this. Do this and let them, let somebody else come up and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you, you, you scored. Let them run up and tap you on the shoulder and say, man, you won. Let them come tell you, you can go home now. 
Let them say, I love you too. Let them say, thank you. Take the lid off the man-made roofs that we put above ourselves and always play like an underdog. The uh, the late and great University of Texas football coach, Daryl Royal. I don't know if y'all remember him. He won a national championship in 69. He won a couple of national championships. Hello, Daryl Royal. He was a friend of mine and a good friend of many people. Now, a lot of people looked up to this man. One of the people looked up to him was a musician named Larry. Now, at this time in his life, Larry was in the prime of his country music career. He had number one hits, and his life was rolling. Uh, and he had, he had picked up a bad habit of uh, snorting the white stuff somewhere along the line. And at one particular party, after a, a bathroom break, Larry went confidently up to his mentor, Daryl, and he started telling him a story. Coach Royal listened, as he always had. And when Larry finished his story and was about to walk away, Coach Royal put a gentle hand on his shoulder and he very discreetly said, Hey, Larry, you uh, got something on your, on your nose there, bud. Well, Larry immediately hurried to the bathroom mirror where he saw some of the white powder that he hadn't cleaned off his nose. He was ashamed. He was embarrassed. As much because he felt so disrespectful to Coach Royal and as much because he'd obviously gotten too comfortable with the drug to even hide it as well as he should. Well, the next day, Larry went to Coach's house. He rang the doorbell. Coach answered, and he said, Coach, I need to talk to you. Daryl said, sure, come on in. Larry confessed. He purged his sins to Coach. He told him how embarrassed he was and how he had lost his way in the midst of all this fame and fortune. And towards the end of an hour, Larry, who, who was in tears, he asked Coach, he said, Coach, what do you, what do you think I should do? Coach, being a man of few words, just looked at him and calmly said, Larry, I have never had any trouble turning the page in the book of my life. Larry got sober that day, and he's been sober for the last 40 years. You ever get in a rut? You know what I'm talking about? You get in a funk? You're stuck on the merry-go-round of a bad habit? I have. We're going to make mistakes. You got to own them. Then you got to make amends. And then you got to move on. Guilt and regret kills many a man before their time. So turn the page. Get off the ride. You are the author of the book of your life. Turn that page. Give your obstacles credit. You know those uh, um, no fear t-shirts that were out? I don't know. People used to wear them 10 years ago. No fear. You may remember those or it's just me. I saw them everywhere. All right. I don't get them and I never did. <laughs> I mean, I try to scare myself at least once a day. I mean, I, I get butterflies every morning before I go to work. I was nervous before I got here to speak tonight. I, I think fear is a good thing. Now, why? Because it increases our need to overcome that fear. All right, so say your obstacle is fear of rejection. All right, you want to ask her out, or you want to ask him out, but you fear that he or she may say no. All right, you, you, you want to ask your boss for that promotion, but you're scared he's going to think you're overstepping your bounds. Well, instead of denying those fears, declare them. Say the fear out loud. Admit it. Give them the credit they deserve. Don't get all macho and act like they're no big deal. And don't get paralyzed by denying that they exist and therefore abandoning your need to overcome them. 
I mean, I'd even subscribe to the belief that we're all destined to have to do the thing that we fear the most anyway, at some point. So give your obstacles credit, and you will, one, find the courage to overcome them, or you will, two, see more clearly that they're not really worth prevailing over. So be brave, have courage, and when you do, you get stronger, you get more aware, you get more respectful of yourself and that which you fear. My hero, that's who I've chased. Now, when I was 15 years old, I had a very important person in my life come to me and say, who's your hero? And I said, I don't know, i got to think about that. Give me a couple of weeks. I come back two weeks later, this person comes up and says, who's your hero? I said, I thought about it. You know who it is? I said, it's me in 10 years. So I turned 25, 10 years later. That same person comes to me and goes, so are you a hero? And I was like, not even close. No, no, no. She said, why? I said, because my hero is me at 35. So you see, every day, every week, every month, and every year of my life, my hero is always 10 years away. I'm never going to be my hero. I'm not going to attain that. I know I'm not. And that's just fine with me because that keeps me with somebody to keep on chasing. But this one I had to struggle with, personal development. It was hard for me to give up my old blame list. It was so comfortable blaming the government and blaming my negative relatives and the company, company policy, unions, wage scale, economy, interest rates, prices and circumstances and all that. That was difficult for me to give up. That was quite a transition for me to make and blaming myself. Mr. Shelf started out with something very, he said, it's not what happens that determines the major part of your future. It's not what happens. What happens happens to us all. He said, the key is what you do about it. It's not what happens. It's what you do about it. And he said, if you will start that process of change, do something different the next 90 days than you did the last 90 days, like picking up the books to read, to help relationship with your family, whatever it is, doesn't matter how small it is. If you'll start doing different things with the same circumstances, since we cannot change the circumstances, but we can change ourselves. We can change what we do. And then he gave me another secret to success when he said, what you have at the moment, Mr. Rohn, you've attracted by the person you've become. What you have at the moment, you've attracted by the person you've become few little simple principles here. Once you understand these, it starts to explain so much. Now, sometimes it's a little tough to take blaming yourself instead of the marketplace. Taking responsibility instead of putting it off on someone else. Those, that transition sometimes is a challenging mission. And this one was a little tough for me. He said, Mr. Owen, you've got pennies in your pocket. You've got nothing in the bank. The creditors are calling. You're behind on your promises. He says, here's how that occurs. You've attracted, up until now, you've attracted the things to you because of the person you've become. Now I said, well, how can I change all that? He said, very simple. If you will change, everything will change for you. You don't have to change what's outside. All you've got to change is what's inside. To have more, you simply have to become more. And then he said, don't wish it was easier. Wish you were better. Don't wish for less problems, wish for more skills. Start working on yourself, making these personal changes. And he said, it'll all change for you. So let's talk a little bit about personal development. That extraordinary adventure I undertook starting at age 25. And I've never ceased that adventure. I'm still going for it in the 90s. I want to get better and better. I want my craft to get better, my business 
operations to get better, the things I do to get better. Because once I picked up this simple formula, I'm telling you it's easy to figure out where the problem is if you go to work on it. Now, let's talk about personal development. And in helping kids understand personal development, I always start with money. Now, money's not the only place to start. Money certainly isn't the only value, but we've all got to start somewhere. And money's something you can count, right? Kids are interested in money, okay? A lot of things are a little tougher to measure, but economics is pretty easy, right? Because you can count. Okay, somebody says, how are you doing? He says, I don't know. Let's count. Now, this is not the only count. I understand that. There's a lot of other things to count. But to see if there may be some errors in your judgment and lack of disciplines in your life, we might as well start with money. Because it's so easy to count. So let's just start there and see whether or not maybe we have messed up. Okay. So here's how I explain it to kids. We get paid for bringing value to the marketplace key to understanding economics. We get paid for bringing value to the marketplace. Marketplace is also described as reality. Reality, the marketplace. Now, it takes time. It takes time to bring value to the marketplace, but we don't get paid for time. It's very important for kids to understand, as well as adults. We don't get paid for time. Mistakenly, the man says, well, I'm making about $20 for an hour. Not true. Not true. If that was true, you could just stay home, have them send your money. No, it's not true. You don't get paid for the hour. You get paid for the value you put in the time. So we don't get paid for time. We get paid for value. Now, since that's true, here's one of the key questions of the afternoon. Is it possible to become twice as valuable and make twice as much money in the same time? Is it possible to become three times as valuable as you now are and make three times as much money in the same time? Is that possible? Of course. If you want to really emphasize something, that's a good phrase. For it. Of course. Of course. Now, all you have to do to earn more money in the same time is simply become more valuable. America's unique. It's a ladder to climb. It starts down here, what, about $4 an hour? Big argument last year in Congress about the starting place. Should be five, should be five, should be five. Well, no, it doesn't need to be five. Why not start with four? It's a ladder. Right? This is not a bed. This is a ladder. It's a ladder to climb. Starts at $4. Now, somebody said, well, should be five, should be five. Well, maybe. If you're going to stay at the bottom for the rest of your life, it probably should be five. But that's kind of a pitiful way to live. Start and not grow. Start and not change. Start and not become more valuable. Hey, the whole scenario of life is to start, number one, and what? Become more valuable, number two. So America is a ladder to climb. Starts at $4 an hour. And the more valuable you become, you just keep moving up the ladder. Top income last year, what, 52 million? Guy that runs Disney? Would a company pay somebody for one year's work, 52 million dollars? And the answer is, of course. This is one of those of course places. Of course. If you help a company make a billion dollars, would they pay you 52 million? The answer is, 
Of course, it's chicken feed. I mean, it's not much money. Now, why that much money? Because he has become so valuable. Now, why would we pay somebody only $4 an hour? They're not very valuable to the marketplace. Now, we've got to make that distinction to the marketplace. Might be a valuable brother, a valuable member of the community, a valuable member of the church, valuable member in the sight of God, to the human family, of course, those kind of values. But to the marketplace, which is called what? Reality. Reality is, if you're not very valuable, you don't get much money. Those are called the facts. I mean, that's how that is. Well, then, how do you get more money? Simple answer. Somebody says, well, I'll go on strike for more. Well, here's a major problem with that. Here's a major problem with that. You can't get rich by demand. Somebody says, well, I'm waiting for a raise. I'm telling you, it's easier to climb than to wait for a raise. Why not just become more valuable rather than wait? I'm telling you, that's the key to all good things. Becoming more valuable. Why would we pay somebody $400 an hour? They've become more valuable to the marketplace. See how this works? I'm telling you, this stuff is so easy. This is America. This is a ladder. How far is it from four to five? I'm telling you, it's not far. Four to five dollars an hour? If you work for McDonald's, haul out the trash, they'll pay you $5 an hour. If you whistle while you haul out the trash, they'll pay you $5 an hour. I'm telling you. You'll get an extra dollar just for a good attitude. Yay, McDonald's. Wear the hat. It's incredible. $5. And then you just keep becoming more valuable, more valuable, more valuable. I got a telephone call five years ago. Company said, we're ready to expand internationally. We need some help. I was sort of semi-retired. Right. Looking for the next exotic beach. He said, no, no, Mr. Rohn, we've got a project for you. Right. We're going to expand internationally. We could use your help. Next little while, we'll add some millions to your fortune, make it worth your while. I said, okay. I thought later, isn't that interesting that they called me? My second thought was, of course they'd call me. Who else would they call? I mean, you know, I could get the job done. Now, how come, how come I got a telephone call worth millions? I had become valuable. Now, I'm a farm boy from Idaho. I was raised in obscurity. One year of college, and I thought I was thoroughly educated. Made all kinds of mistakes galore. At age 25, the creditors are calling me saying, hey, you told us the check was in the mail. I got pennies in my pocket. I got nothing in the bank. I'm behind on my promises. How come I get a telephone call five years ago and it's worth millions? I changed, I changed, I turned my life around. Is it possible to become worth millions? Speaking economically, now there's a lot of values to become, but let's just talk economics. Is it possible to become that valuable? And the answer is, of course, of course. Now let me give you the secret. Show said, here's the secret, Mr. Rohn. Learn to work harder on yourself than you do on your job. Once I got that, it turned my life around. Learn to work harder on yourself than you do on your job.
He said, if you work hard on your job, you'll make a living. If you work hard on yourself, you can make a fortune. If you would have known me at age 25, you would have said, Jim Rohn's a hard worker. If you'd have known me, you'd have said that. I'm the guy, I don't mind coming a little bit early, staying a little bit late. I don't mind that. You'd have said, well, Jim Rohn's a hard worker. You say, well, how come he's got pennies in his pocket and nothing in the bank and behind on his promises? Well, I was a hard worker, but I was working hard on my job, not on my self. I'm telling you, if you'll learn that simple little principle and start the process today, latest tomorrow, I'll give you tonight to think it over. And start this whole process of personal development, work on yourself, make yourself more valuable to the marketplace. I'm telling you, you can so dynamically change your income and economics is the least of the values that you can start earning in terms of equity. If you'll start working harder on yourself than you do on your job. Work hard on yourself and develop the skills. Work hard on yourself and develop the graces. All of the stuff necessary to become more valuable to the marketplace. I'm telling you, your whole life can explode into change. Promotions, no problem. Becoming more valuable to the company, I'm telling you, no problem. Money, no problem. Economics, no problem. Future, no problem. If you just go to work on the right thing. Not get things out there to change. Don't try to change the seed. Don't change the soil. Don't change the sunshine. Don't change the rain. Don't change the mix of seasons. Let the miracle of everything that's available work for you. And start working on the inside. Work on your philosophy. Work on your attitude. Work on your personality. Work on your language. Work on the gift of communication. Work on all of your abilities. And if you'll start making those personal changes, I'm telling you, everything will change for you.